1: With your hosts,
0: Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. Yeah, spring migration's starting, so we're starting to deal with ducks and geese every dang day, and waterfowl migrating back, and yeah, a bit of pain.
1: What's the weather like out there? Is a lot of the snow melted off the mountains yet, or is that not going to be for a
0: couple more months before the tops are gone? Not for a couple more months up in the mountains. Yeah, I mean, we're... We just, all our snow down here melted off. It was like 55 here today. Um, supposed to be in the mid-50s the rest of the time, but I think everything about uh, 7,000 feet and above has probably still got quite a bit of snow on it. Gotcha. Yeah, we're about at that point, too, where we finally, for the first week, I
1: think, like, earlier this week was the first day in 140-something days where we had a temperature that was going to hit 50 degrees. So that's exciting. Snows. Yeah. It's probably going to be like ninety percent gone, other than like the tall drifts. You know, we still got like the three, four foot drifts at the edge of the driveway, but you're starting to see grass in a lot
0: of places. Yeah, it's the way it is here. We're at like, I think last time I looked, the snowpack because all of our water comes from snowpack basically, and then they just hold it in reservoirs, and that's what we get drinking water from. I think we were upwards of like two hundred percent snowpack in the mountains, so that's good. Does that mean your water bills are going to be lower next summer? Yeah, no. <laughs> it just means we're not going to be struggling for water like we always are.
1: <laughs> the only bad thing about it is it, we're just it's like a rapid thaw. So we've gotten some flooding, which I think a lot of people are dealing with right now. But it also means that there's a very short window where I'm going to be able to scout the marsh where I can actually still walk on the ice, but it's not going to be knee-deep snow. I'm hoping this weekend it'll still be solid enough to walk on. But I have a feeling it's going to be kind of mushy.
0: Yeah, I would imagine once it starts thawing, it's going to go from one extreme to the other pretty quick. It's going to go from snowy to muddy in a heartbeat.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I got
1: I got some big plans this year um, in terms of places I want to scout. I'd like to, I mean, best case scenario, I scout basically three states this spring fairly heavily. Um, I want to... For sure southeast Minnesota for the firearm season. Uh, main reason being I felt like when I was there the last time for just those couple of days, I felt like I was so behind what I wanted to do didn't work and it would have taken enough scouting to do like plan B that I just decided I'm just gonna put it off till the spring. And then that Wisconsin area I was telling you about, where I showed you the pictures, yep. I'm gonna really try and hit that thing hard and really try to learn it because to this point I've only really stepped foot on that place like three times, scouted it twice. I probably have like, I want to say maybe 10 total hours boots on the ground scouting it that I've only hunted it once, but I, I feel like that place has some really good potential.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, in your situation, it makes it difficult because you go from winter to spring so quick you know like a lot of people you know in the kind of the lower part of the midwest missouri iowa some of that area they don't have the snowfall that you guys get i know um, i think we were talking earlier about you know people shed hunting you know and there was still you posted a picture maybe on your social media and it looked like it was like three foot of snow at the archery range where you were at <laughs> yeah well i mean
1: it's not normally as snowy as it was this year i mean we broke a couple records this february for amount of snowfall that we've gotten I want to say four out of the last six years, we've gotten less snow over the entire winter than we got in this month of February.
0: Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty relentless. Yeah. It's a, that's a little extreme. If they can kind of spread that out over a longer time frame, it'd be okay.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, last year too, we got that big snowstorm during the turkey season. So it always, it seems like we don't get a lot of snow, but when we get it, it's just like a whole bunch at once.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, with here talking about flooding, that's kind of the big thing here is we don't want it to warm up too quick, too fast, so we don't get all this snowpack coming as runoff so quickly. We want it to kind of gradually melt throughout the summer. That way we can hold the water up on the mountains and the reservoirs don't overflow, basically, because if all that melts and rushes down quick, then the reservoirs aren't big enough to hold all that water. they got to cut loose a lot of that water, so then you don't get to hold it. basically. Yeah, we're wasting a lot of water because we have to get rid of it. Interesting.
1: So. And is the reason that they can't hold it just because the, the dams or whatever that they got just aren't built high enough? Or you'd risk flooding yeah. the people that are built? Or, I guess are there people that have, like, houses and stuff or the restaurants and all that kind of stuff around the reservoirs? Or is it – try to they try to keep it more, like, pristine since it's drinking water use?
0: More pristine just because it's drinking water to use. Like, you can't use um, – gas-powered engines. I think some of them don't even allow you to put boats in, Uh, but you can fish from the bank, no swimming, things like that. Uh, But it's mostly just because the reservoirs, they're just not big enough to hold that amount of water that quickly. You know, they're designed for a slow melt, where kind of the amount of melt matches the consumption of water being used by the town. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, it's like a whole different world. I've got to
1: worry about any of that stuff. Got so much water in the state.
0: Yeah, it's crazy here. It's the other way around. I mean, we're penny-pinching waters. So
1: so that that's interesting, though, because, like, out there when you're scouting or hunting for, you know, mule deer or elk in Utah, I mean, is spring scouting really even a thing? Or do you really not start to get, like, valuable information until, you know, late summer when you start to see the velvet and do glassing?
0: Yeah, late summer through glassing is primarily when you're going to do all your scouting out here. Uh, you know, early spring, you know, a lot of the deer right now are still low. Um, some of them haven't even lost antlers yet. I know we've seen two bucks here uh, on our street, basically, last week. One of my dogs decided that's going to try and chase them. Um, but they they were still holding. So, you know, here we are March 19th, and we're still holding antlers here. So, you know, between spring and summer those bucks are going to move up towards the high country you know so they've got a long ways to move basically um and you're not going to do really any scouting until july time frame uh 4th of july maybe a little bit after that's when you could really start to do some scouting
1: i mean do they basically move up as soon as the snows off the mountain and those
0: greens start coming back up yeah pretty much as the snow starts melting they start moving up with the snow as it melts uh, you know, and obviously with this much snow it may hold them down a little bit lower for longer in the year. Uh, but eventually they're going to be all the way back up in into the high country.
1: Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned shed hunting. They, uh, one of my friends just texted me a picture of a big set that he just found. I want to say it was like, I think it was 130 something, you know, not including the inside spread, which is not a bad deer for this area. I mean, for, for public land, that's pretty good buck um, and so one of the things I'm doing this weekend, you know when I get out, it's like, do I want to focus more on sheds? because I feel like this place like there's a couple spots where I think I know the deer have been sort of I don't want to say yarded up because I don't really do that that hard here, but um I definitely know some areas where I think they've been congregating. I think I could find some sheds, but at the same time, it's like that those areas where there's a lot of sign right now and that last remaining snow isn't always necessarily going to be the spots where i'm going to find that fresh sign come september when the season opens up so it's like how much time do i spend looking for sheds versus how much time do i spend actually scouting and looking for tree stand spots it's like do i try to do both or just keep making multiple trips until i get it all done decisions
0: yeah i've i've never gotten into the whole shed hunting aspect of things like so many people go out just to look for sheds. I know out here in the West, it's big money. Um, you can make a lot of money finding good match set, uh, you know, brown elk antlers. Basically, you can sell them for good money. But even like back east, I don't. I've never been in the the shed hunting game. Like I don't. To me, I just don't see the the benefit of going out there and just specifically looking for sheds. I would rather you know kind of be like you. I'd rather go scout when the opportunity comes than to actually go walking around looking for sheds yeah i mean
1: i definitely don't think there's as much of a a market because i mean you guys don't really have like game farms out west right i'd imagine for like alchemy's whereas like if a guy wants a big set of whitetail sheds like he's probably gonna buy them from like a game farm where you get a giant set right there's even like probably like a match 150 inch set like who's gonna pay for that you know, I just don't think there's that much of a market for
0: it out in the Midwest or out East. Even just the drive for the individual just to go out and and find a shed, you know, and it's like, yeah, look what I've got. And I'm just like, you know, to me, I just can't wrap my head about it. It's like, okay, yeah, you picked up a deer. I mean, when we were kids, we used to walk past them. You know, we just never picked them up. We didn't think anything about it. Now it's like if somebody sees you walk by a shed, they're going to freak out. Just, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've got sheds piled up somewhere in this house but they're just ones i've stumbled across and picked up and it's just like you know i don't go out with the direct determination to go find them most of them were for my dog to chew on till he busted up all his teeth the knucklehead
1: (laughs) well it is exciting when i find one i'll say that i'd say if there was more places that were really close to my house which now that i say that there's a couple big parks that are close to hunting, but I bet I could probably just, you know, walk around and and shed hunt, so to speak. But I feel like a lot of the places I really spend the bulk of my time scouting are far enough away from the cities that they're a decent enough drive that if I want to make a scouting trip out there, I want to make the most out of every hour that I'm out there and, and really make the trip worth it and, you know, scout as much stuff as I can. So then it's like, for me, if that's my primary focus, the shed hunting kind of takes a back seat. And like you said, it's like if you just kind of stumble upon it. That's usually the only ones I
0: ever find. Yeah, I don't think I've ever. I think maybe in college, a couple of times, a couple of buddies and I went out for dedicated, like walking around looking for sheds and had never found anything. You know, but there's so many times like I'm just turkey hunting or doing whatever. And then you stumble across a shed. I think the biggest shed I ever found was we were coyote hunting and ended up shooting a coyote. And like two feet in front of this coyote was just a massive, like non-typical, I think it had like eight points on the one side that I found. I was like, wow, that's crazy. You know, literally just killed a coyote three feet from the shed. And if I had not shot the coyote, probably never would have found that shed. Huh. The biggest one I found was in July.
1: I posted a picture of that one on, I probably showed you a picture of that one. That one was, it was strange because it didn't even, it was still in like pristine condition. Yeah, it looked just as if you would have found it in like February or March. But it was July. That was crazy. Just literally almost stepped on it too, just walking through the woods. <laughs> That's how that one happened.
0: Yeah, like I wonder how many how many sheds people walk by and don't see. Like I you know, so they do this thing in the in this bird community, I guess, um, based off wind farms, right? so wind farms have a impact to migratory birds and bats and things like this so they do surveys around these wind turbines where they'll take you know x number of dead birds and they'll scatter them out underneath these wind turbines and then they'll have people walk through there to survey the number of dead birds they find so they know like there's 30 dead birds under here well this guy only found eight this guy found 29 of the 30. Um, So they kind of get an idea of how well the people are actually surveying the sites. I wonder if you did something like that for shed hunters. Like what's the percentage of sheds they're actually going to find to sheds that are out there? Yeah, that's interesting. I know for sure mine would
1: be super low. (laughs) Like I just don't – I don't have an eye – I don't know if I don't have an eye for it, but I definitely – I don't think because it's not the main focus usually of why I'm out there, I'm sure I just glance over like a ton. Because a lot of times when I'm walking, I'm just like speed walking through an area and just covering ground. And uh, I'll slow down if I find like a bed or something and try to figure it out. But it's like, man, I just walk like 400 yards and I didn't even like, I wasn't even aware of my surroundings really that much. It's like, I wonder, yeah,
0: like. I'm looking for I'm looking at like the terrain of the land I'm looking at like for rubs I'm looking at trees possibly to hunt from what type of tree you know am I in a mixed hardwood that has more oaks or more hickories and like you said you'll be 400 yards into it you're like you know I never looked at the ground a single time between here and where I just came from and so to me I'm like my percentage would be extremely extremely low like less than 10 percent would be my guess
1: yeah, but I bet if you were actually looking for them, like if you made a dedicated trip just to look for sheds, I bet there's a learning curve, and I bet there's some people that are definitely a lot better than it, at it than others. But I bet you do. Oh pretty, yeah, pretty well.
0: I mean, it'd be like you know walking through the but the woods and looking for deer beds. You know, obviously that takes a, a certain eye to pick out the depression. You know, the leaves basically flattened out in that certain spot, whereas most people would walk right by it and never see it. You know, so you're just trying to key your eye into looking for those abnormalities you know like the tine sticking up a pointed object you know the color of it could your dog find sheds if that's what you <laughs> trained it
1: to do no <laughs> i when i
0: started with him that's kind of what i i wanted to split him between blood trailing and and shed hunting uh he just you know i did a couple trial runs where i purposely put out sheds to see if he could find them He'd walk right over him, not even care. He's like me. <laughs> He's like, ah, there, there's an antler. Nobody cares. That's funny. So he, he took the blood trail in a lot better, which for me was, that was the good thing. Now, when, you, when you're when you in that Missouri type
1: of habitat, when would you stumble upon him? Was it just kind of random or like yeah. the no so, rhyme or reason?
0: Yeah, for the most part, when I was a kid, we found most all of them when we were bucking hay bales in the summer. Um, you know, you'd pick up a square bale that'd have a shed in it, or you would find, you know, a shed laying in the, after the cut, basically, and you're like, oh, hey, there's a shed. You know, no big deal. Um, you know, a lot of them are in the kind of the thick cedar areas that we found, um, and then some just randomly. Uh, craziest places in the world. I remember one time we found one in the middle of the driveway, and it's like, How does that even happen? I guess he jumped the fence and jarred it loose, but,
1: you know. Do those deer down there, I mean, it's obviously milder winters than we have up here. Do they do much different once it gets to, I guess, winter through early spring before the stuff starts to green up, or are they just kind of, you know, wandering through those same types of habitat funnels and landscape features that they are
0: in the fall and just, like, eating browse and stuff? Yeah, sometimes it seems like they... They visit more the the pasture land, so kind of the greener where the sun does get it. You know, it'll help green that stuff up even in the winter. You know, so they kind of visit that the corner of the pastures uh, wherever they can. That's basically a little more open because a lot of times they've mowed down most of the brows and most of the mass crops by then. So they're going wherever they can. You know, try to find open areas where sunlight's getting to the whether it be the forest floor or to you know a pasture to try to green it up a little bit. Gotcha. That makes sense. I think where
1: one thing that I am not very good at, and I'd like to try and figure out a little bit better is learning some of those later in the year deer browse, uh, like trees and, and uh, that type of thing. Like one of the things I've noticed just the last like couple months is I always kind of assumed that if there was farm country around deer would you know, kind of gravitate more toward farm country in those later months from December on through January, February, essentially still starts till it starts greening up again. But what I've been finding is that, you know, it's like, even in that deep snow, even when there's crop fields around, there's still very obviously deer that are uh, browsing and feeding on certain very specific things in the woods. Um, and some of those scouting pictures I sent you, if you look at those pictures and see where the tracks are kind of congregated, you can. It almost looks like there's like a bedding spot where it looks just like that, like pounded down, but there's clearly no bed in the, the pictures. It's just, okay, that's obviously a, a late season food source, whether it's, you know, that specific species of tree or whether it's something that's special about it that, that really draws those deer in. And just trying to figure out if those are perpetual things where, you know, if I find a deer feeding on that in January, February, am I going to find that same thing feeding on the same type of tree, or maybe even feeding on those specific trees that you see a lot of that congregation, a lot of those tracks in like, you know, February, early March, what we're seeing now That's what I'm trying to, I'm really taking a bunch of notes on that kind of stuff right now.
0: One of the big things is just observing those deer when you're on stand, you know, if you're, even if you don't think the deer is going to come in range, you know, just glass that deer as long as possible, see what it's munching on. When you get down walk over and say, Hey, why did it spend five minutes right here? One of the big ones that, you know, kind of my family, are kind of around the edge of a lot of the fields and stuff, you know, coral berry is a real big one. It's kind of a low shrub, grows to about, eh, I don't know, maybe three feet, three and a half feet. It's got kind of a disclaimer, I'm colorblind. I I don't know if it's (laughs) red, I don't know if it's pink. It has a small little cluster of berries on it, and they seem to stay on until, oh, mid... Late November, you'll see them, and a deer really like to forage on them, um, especially in that late time frame. And then I know in the south, one of the big things is smilax, so greenbrier. A lot of people will find that in a tree and basically pull it down and kind of cluster it up. We had good luck with that when the property we hunted was clear cut, basically. And so when they clear cut a lot of the pines, all that coral bear or all that uh, smilax, greenbrier came down then all those deer were basically foraging in those areas, and that's what really keyed us onto it. And then, you know, we started looking around and figured out a lot of people were doing that on public land and stuff. You'd see a, a tree stand, and you'd look around, and you could see where they pulled a bunch of Smilax out of the tree, basically.
1: Yeah. Um. What, one thing I
0: found a
1: lot of deer sign in this past weekend was the Tamarack Swamp areas. And I saw that growing up, too, because we had a swamp that I hunted, and we had Tamarack Swamp areas in it and I knew the deer would go back there in late season, but I always assumed at the time that it was just because they were pushed there due to pressure. And that was, you know, the late season and I never really went out there in January or February. And I assumed it was pressure that pushed the deer back there. And that's why they were there. If anything, maybe a secondary reason was like thermal cover, but even listening to like, you know, some of the other podcast from like Land and Legacy talking about you know what actually is thermal cover it's not always necessarily what you think it is and seeing some of that sign in those type of areas now this time of year even when it starts to warm up a little bit it makes me think I wonder if there's something in the Tamarack swamps that those deer are also feeding on because the tracks in the it's not just like A to B type of tracks it's like they're spending a ton of time they're milling around um, so if I go back out there next weekend one of the things I'm going to try and figure out is are they actually eating something out there. And maybe that's something too, that one of the listeners, if they're familiar with Tamarack swamps, they might be able to, to figure out and tell me as well.
0: Could be a secondary type of vegetation that benefits from the same type of habitat that the Tamarack does. So when you're in that area, you obviously see the Tamarack because it's what stands out the most, but there could be a, some other type of vegetation that likes that same style of habitat and grows in there that you're just not noticing, not paying that much attention to, or not even just seeing, you know, the deer may be mowing it down as quickly as they can. Yeah, that very well could be. I mean, there's obviously grassy
1: areas that surround the the Tamaracks and those Tamaracks kind of just pop up on those little islands.
0: So yeah, very well could be. That'd be my guess. Is there something there that just, just getting overlooked, you know, like I know a lot of mushroom hunters, morel mushroom hunters look for like May apples, and a lot of times morel mushrooms will grow in and amongst May apples because they kind of like that same type of soil and atmospheric conditions. So you see May apples and you, you know, kind of reference, okay, well, there might be morel mushrooms around here. Hmm. You know what it could be too? When I scouted there in July, there was a lot of that arrowhead
1: or the duck potato that I found in a different area of the marsh. And I didn't really, last weekend get, to like walk up close into that stuff i was kind of observing it from a distance it could be that there's some of that growing in that grass too and maybe when i get out there on foot next weekend that may be what i find or something similar like you said
0: yeah just something that's in there that you're just you're overlooking because you're you know focused on you know it being a tamarack stand instead of being whatever else is in there i just hope there's enough snow left by
1: this weekend that those tracks will still be there. I mean, I'm obviously, I know where to look. I know where there's going to be tracks, but it might just be ice at that point or maybe just muck. But at any rate, there's going to be a lot of mowed down like trails, and I might still be able to pick up on what those types of things are.
0: It's just a lot easier with snow. Snow makes scouting so much easier.
1: So does ice in those those wet swamps. We're also going to need knee boots or hip boots potentially yeah. and tamaracks.
0: Yeah, especially for you because. Like you said, I couldn't imagine walking through a lot of that marsh when it's mucky, you know, just sinking up to your knees and just like, oh, that'd be horrible. No yeah. thanks.
1: Yeah, it's not the water that's bad. It's the softness of the soil underneath it. It just drains the energy out of you. Which is one of like the reasons... Walking on quicksand. <laughs> right, which is one of the reasons why with those those uh, ultralight boots, those tingly ones, I had to use that secondary strap to... Lock those things down tight to my ankle. Otherwise, you're leaving those things in the muck every step.
0: <laughs> Didn't you buy some like goofy boots that had like a parachute on them so you wouldn't sink it in the mud? Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't had a fantastic chance to try those out. um
1: But this is definitely a good place to try it out <laughs> for sure. Because uh, there's what actually. Were they, what were they called? They're called Mudders. I bought them from. Mudders? Yeah. Ridgeline Supply, I want to say, is the place I bought them from. Yeah, I mean, they're they're very purpose-built. Um, and what I, I've kind of figured out is that if it's, like, grassy and wet, they get caught, kind of. You know, like if you're walking through, like, a cattail um, type of trail where it's really narrow, you're going to catch just because they're so big. But what they're really made for is when you have more open uh, ground that is mucky. So, if you're going through like more open, like not cattails, but like tall grass where you got just kind of a.
0: Uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? I'm like thinking hum- like a tidal marsh. Like yeah. when the tide goes out and you have all that soft, mucky ground between the. I just yeah. spaced out. That's uh, basically the shore and where the water line is.
1: That's what they're really made for. So, if you can think like mud, like open mud, like quicksand type stuff, that's what they excel in. And then anything in between is going to be a kind of a range of works really well or works really well, but also has some inconveniences along with it. They're pretty heavy too. But I mean, when they, when you need them, you need them, you know, like you'll be, it's pretty obvious when like how much of a difference it makes when you actually use them in an area that is kind of mucky. So, and I think part of it too, last year I hunted more hill country than I did marsh partly because I was on to, some decent deer in the hill country and uh, partly because this place that I'm excited about now is such a far drive. Um, I think I just got to kind of focus on one area at a time if I really want to stay current and
0: in the hunts throughout the year. And in your case that's that's what can be really difficult from a gear aspect is you kind of have to have two extremes hill country gear with you know your lighter weight boots because you may be going in deeper you're going to be going up more steep rugged terrain Compared to your marsh gear where you're still going to want to be light, but you got to deal with, you know, instead of having like a cart, you got to have a sled basically because you're not going to be using a cart in a marsh. So you kind of almost have to have more gear in an area like where you're hunting because of that. Yeah, I tend to agree with that.
1: Although, I mean, I feel like for hill country, you don't need as much in terms of specialized gear, right? I mean, a good pair of like hiking boots or tennis shoes even, and you can do all right in hill country. Whereas, right. whereas with marsh, you get that water and it's like, that opens up a whole new, especially when, it, like if it's just hot and it's wet, it's one thing. But once it gets cold and you got all that water too, then you really gotta, you gotta be careful and make sure you got the right stuff. Cause more than one time, even like those tamarack swamps, like growing up, I, I've gone through the ice. You, you might have 12, 18 inches of ice out in the lakes. People are ice fishing, driving the trucks out there and
0: you still break through in a piece of tamarack swamp. And even have to deal with, muskrat runs and beaver runs in some of that area, you know, you may look at it like, Oh yeah, it's only like three inches deep and then you step into it and you're up to your waist and you're like, Well, so much for that idea (laughs) Yep. The other thing that excites me about this place too is that it
1: is really it's just made. It is just made for gun hunting. Like there's just like some of the areas where you have the access routes and you have that the access routes are always in the high ground. Right? The high areas where you got the Uh, the clear cuts that are growing up and you got the oak trees and and all this and that, and you got the access trails and then they're surrounded by the marshes and they're surrounded by kind of that low, like timbered swamps too. And a lot of those timbered swamps are surrounded by uh, kind of the more open marshes. So there's areas in those swamp transitions where you can just get like 25, 30 feet up in a tamarack tree and basically have like a 200 yard radius around that tree. That's just like loaded with access or uh, escape trails from that high ground that the deer are going to be using. And, uh, that's interesting. And my fiance is playing around with the idea of, of doing a hunt this fall too. Um, so we might try and scout that together and it's just, it's one of those places where it's like, it's very similar to, and reminds me a lot of the marsh that I grew or hunted growing up in the fact that. You can kind of hunt the, the fringes, hunt the edges, get in the cattails for early season. But then once gun season hits, you sit at the edge of those tamaracks and man, just, there would be so many deer that get kicked out into that stuff. <laughs> and if you get high enough up in those trees, it's like you can do jumping jacks up there because there's so much cover. That's crazy. You get some good footage. Yeah, that it, that it would make for especially the higher up you get. Imagine those sika hunts if you were able to get 25, 30 feet up in a tree.
0: Man, it'd be nuts. That's what I, that's the only thing I could relate it to is yeah. Most of the time you can only get four feet up off the ground and that's about it until so you, you extended your visibility range from 12 feet to 15 feet, basically.
1: Yep. Yeah. So then the other thing too, is trying to figure out what's going to be the most ideal spots for like observation type sets. So there's like a couple areas where I've been kind of looking for water access whether it's like a creek or, um, even like a flooded, like duck pond, almost area, places where I can access in and then access from the water to kind of minimize the scent, put the trail camera right up on the first high ground. So I'm not really getting scent in the area on the ground too much. Um, and potentially not even crossing any of those deer trails. And then also areas like that where I can just pop up out of the stream, get on a, a tall tree that's right next to that water and then be able to glass on some of the areas, which Granted, once once the summer hits, it's gonna be kind of tough with just the foliage that pops up at that point. But still trying to just piece together those those different locations.
0: Yeah, to me, that's something that's always I've always hated is like you find a good observation tree and you're like, yeah, I think this is gonna be a great spot. And then you climb up there in the winter and it's not what you thought it was because you looked at it in the summer and there was all this foliage on, and you're like, oh yeah, I think I can uh, I think I can see good from that tree. And then you hunt it just as an observation stand and you see like 40 yards and you're like, "What? how did I miss this that bad?
1: <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's tough. And, um, I was, I was actually just on a podcast with some guys that made kind of that same point about how things look so different now this time of year than they do in the fall, even Night even from early season to late season. You're hunting 15 feet up in the tree early season, and you can see 20 yards. You can get away with a whole bunch of movement and noise. And it's like late season, polar opposite. You can see 200 yards, and you tap your release against the bow, and you can hear a a whole herd of them just taking off 400
0: yards away. I I remember when I started hunting in Virginia, holly trees were new to me. And so they're green all year round. And so, like, you see all this green in the summer, and you're like, oh, yeah, this is a great spot. But what you're you're not picking out is the individual holly trees. And you get up there in the winter, and all these holly trees are still green with all their leaves on them. And it's like, man, you can't see 40 yards. And I remember there was a guy there one time that told me, he's like, man, holly trees are 90% air. You can just shoot right through them, no problem. (laughs) I was like, what? It's like, this doesn't make sense. So every time I see a holly tree, that's what I think is 90% air. We got buckthorn that
1: holds onto its green leaves for quite a while. There's some areas where it, it's an invasive species, and there's some areas where it's it's pretty dense. And when it gets dense, it gets really dense, and it's tough to walk through. I don't know if you have that in Missouri or had that in Missouri or what Virginia kind of, at all. You said buckthorn? Yeah, buckthorn is what it's called. I don't know if it has Carolina
0: buckthorn? Or, I mean... I don't know. I've, I know there's like Carolina buckthorn, you know, kind of down in the south, but I don't remember that. It doesn't, if I remember right, it doesn't hold its leaves that long. You know, it's a smaller tree shrub, six to eight feet maybe. Well, I can tell you like mid-October, late October,
1: it's still got green leaves on it. Um, Cause that, that Metro hunt that I did, the point that I hunted on was just choked down with it. And I had to basically just make like an eight foot tall mountain of of uh buckler that i caught down just to be able to get a couple
0: shooting lanes mid-october in most of the midwest everything's probably still green at that point <laughs> oh not for us yeah <laughs> that's what i was thinking i was like man when we were hunting in missouri last year it was pretty green and then i think the week you came down is when everything started to turn and fall yeah we pretty, pretty much like, man. we pretty much had no leaves in the trees by that point yeah up in minnesota Mid October and still green, <laughs> <laughs> but that's
1: normal. With the um, that spot that we hunted, would you say if you were to do that again, um, would you hunt more in that river bottom, or do you think I, you would go higher again? I've been thinking about so that. So,
0: I think there was a really interesting transition point uh, when, when you were there and we hunted that even, you know, the week I hunted before you got there, I think most of the deer were high. When we went back to retrieve your gear that you left, (laughs) there was so much shine in that river bottom from when, that was five days after you left, something like that, the sign in that river bottom skyrocketed. Um, and I think, I think that was just an increase of deer movement you know we seen I felt like when we were there the littler bucks were up and moving and then kind of that last couple days I hunted I had three three good bucks I passed on well there was one that was two that were three and a half years old and one that was two and a half years old that I passed on and I just felt like maybe that was the timing when the rut really kicked up and I think that river bottom would have been really good that you know, first week of gun season, basically when, you know, the week after you left. Yeah. Figures. Time and it so I, I think, the, <laughs> I think there's a transition point when most of those deer, you know, maybe not most of the deer, maybe the bucks go from being that kind of, you know, upper hardwood forest, mixed hardwood forest down into that thicker river bottom. Cause just looking at that river bottom to me, it just looked really good. It was thick, you know, a lot of, low vegetation that was four feet and below sparse trees, some cedars in there as well. It just looked really good to me. Yeah.
1: Well, I I felt like I saw a lot of sign too. Probably not as much, obviously as what you're saying you saw a few days later, but I felt like there was still a decent amount of sign down there, but there was also sign up top. And I wonder if too, that just those few days later, maybe that increase in deer movement, maybe it was happening there. Maybe it was happening on the hilltops too maybe it's just more concentrated because those areas tend to have like their corridors, right. So they may tend as this overall amount
0: of sign in the woods increases, you're going to notice it the most right there could be. And it could be that that was mainly an evening spot, you know, kind of with the thermals coming down in the evening, those bucks were running out that river bottom, you know, towards those pastures, you know, and being able to scent check pretty much anything that was around by running that river bottom. Cause it was, you know, the cold air was settling and bringing all that stuff down into that bottom.
1: Yeah, or first thing in the morning before that sun hits the valley. Right. I was, I was almost thinking if you could, I mean, some of those spots that there was a lot of sign, almost like directly even straight down from where I was. So I was almost thinking you could have two trees ready to go. You could be able to hunt that first light, be able to hunt down that river bottom. And then once the sun starts hitting the valley floor, pop down, walk over 300 yards, climb up that uh, that sinkhole, be able to hunt the high ground. And if you climb it in the right spot, you're not really even getting your scent on areas where the deer are going to be traveling and then just pop right yeah, back down the last
0: light. Especially with that, that sinkhole right there by you. I mean, I don't think anything's just going to go into that little bowl and wander around and come back out. I just, you know, that's a really good spot to have your sink go from that area. Yeah. I was thinking if if we go back there,
1: that would be a good spot, I think, to try and figure out a way to climb from the bottom of the sinkhole to the top. And be able to just basically hang a, a set right there on the edge.
0: Yeah, I don't know how I walked. I don't know how I walked around that sinkhole that many times and never found it. Yeah, I find That's, it the first time I'm out there, and you lived there for how many
1: years and you never saw it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I walked all around there. My dad's trying to tell me exactly where it's at. I'm like, man, I don't not seen this sinkhole. And you're like, oh yeah, hey, look what I found. I'm like, can, man, you, how did I walk <laughs> around a 300 yard by 300 yard sinkhole?
1: You can even see it. It's not. In the, you can kind of see it in the topo lines.
0: So I don't know how you never really. I think he was, he said the road came up right there next to it. So when we went out there after you to pick up your tree tether, then there was, he's like, yeah, the old road used to be right here. And basically you were hunting right off the side of where the old road used to be. Did it come up those pines on that ridge? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Came up those pines on that ridge, you know, right, I mean, right there next to where you were at. And he said, that's where the old original road used to be because those creek bottoms used to be fields when he was a kid. Cause he used to deer hunt those field edges basically. And obviously they're kind of, you can tell there's a remnant of a field there, but a lot of it's, you know, grown up with trees that are 30 years old. Yeah. Well, that's where that buck came up.
1: He probably came up wherever that old road used to be. Obviously the you can't really tell that it used to be a road now unless except for the fact that it's just kind of a, a little flat spot on that Ridge.
0: Right. Yeah. And that's what, you know, he kept telling me it was by the roads. So I was looking at the the road we walked in on and where it came up the other side. That's why I was like, man, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know what you're talking about. You must be thinking somewhere else, but no, he was right. Um, but that, so that week after I left
1: was, was good, huh? Cause that, that's basically the rifle season then for Missouri, right? The
0: yeah, that weekend. was the first week or first weekend of rifle season, and uh, you know, like I said, I passed on two, three and a half year old bucks. One of them was a nice tall deer, uh, probably sixteen and a half inches wide, and I guess I didn't, I don't remember it having a broken tine. It had a broken G three. I don't remember seeing it having a broken G three when I seen it on Friday. And my mom killed that deer on Sunday afternoon, and it had a broken tine. It may have had it when I seen it, but I don't remember that. Uh, and it was it was a pretty good deer, and it was cruising along the edge of kind of the food plots, staying in that thicker timber, you know, right along the edge, and checking those, those fields. And I, all three of those bucks came through when I was there on Friday within 45 minutes of each other, and they were all cruising. So...
1: And remind me again that you can if you hunt the rifle season you gotta buy the firearm tag. You can't hunt it with the bow tag. And vice versa, you can you can hunt the um the bow season with the bow tag, but obviously not with the firearm tag. So if you were Correct. to hunt through both seasons, you'd have to buy both tags. Yes. The, which sucks. Were they two twenty a piece? Yeah, two twenty five I think. Okay.
0: Yeah, so if you're gonna do rifle season, you gotta buy a rifle tag and hunt in rifle season with that tag you can use a bow during rifle season whereas if you're bow hunting you can bow hunt up to gun season and then after gun season with that tag gotcha so
1: then the um the only thing with that is that week that's probably pretty good is like still the week that it's generally pretty good like in every other state in the upper midwest like that would be what I'm thinking too. It'd be like ideal time if we took a if I took a trip out to North Dakota. Like that's about the time frame I'd want to go out
0: there too. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it's in Missouri. It's always the second weekend in November, so that always tends to fall around the fourteenth. Except for next year, twenty twenty, I think it falls later somehow. Um, I'm not sure. It, comes out kind of weird but it falls a little bit later like it starts maybe the 20th I'm not even sure but I think it's something like that it falls later in 2020 yeah so that's I a have ca- to get my calendar out and look cuz if it falls later in Missouri it means it probably falls later in
1: the Dakotas too cuz that uh I think it's the same weekend over there and you have to draw to get a tag out there and I looked at the draws for non-residents it seemed like it was pretty astronomical to try and draw a firearm tag out there as a non-resident, but the, the archery tags are much easier. So you'd want to hunt ideally in that type of a state right up to the beginning edge of that gun season. And you probably a pretty good rut hunt.
0: I was looking at maybe going to Montana and hunting some other small populations of whitetail up there this year, uh, had a coworker of mine take his kids up there last year. And over the weekend, they ended up killing two pretty good bucks. I think one was like a 150 and one was like a 130. You know, they just went up there blind. It was like, yeah, this looks like a good spot. And the rifle season so lasts like killed. six weeks. Yeah.
1: They ended up killing some pretty good deer. Yeah, I looked into that too after I watched enough of the, the Randy Newberg hunts out in Montana. I just can't get over driving across the entire state of North Dakota. Where I can get like a two hundred fifty dollar tag to pay six hundred dollars for a tag in Montana. Yeah,
0: yeah, I don't, I don't blame you there. That's that's kind of a no brainer. Is why I drive. It's like what they always say here: Why walk past elk to try to find elk? <laughs> so you might as well stop at them and hunt them. Speaking of uh, Colorado, they
1: changed the uh, the regulation slightly. So when we applied this year to get our our tags. Like I didn't even buy a tag yet, I just applied for Mule Deer, and I'll buy the over-the-counter elk tag. You had to get a small game license just to be able to like put your name in. So now I got a small game license that just arrived in the mail <laughs> for, for Colorado. So I guess I can shoot a grouse when we're out there. Yeah, that's
0: a big debate between a lot of the states out west here is, do you pay for all your tags up front when you apply and then get your money refunded if you don't draw? Or do you have to buy a small game or a combination fishing and hunting license, basically, to be able to apply? Or do you just put $5 in and then when you draw, you draw? And so it's kind of interesting how all the different states out here work on that. And I know, I think Cast did a podcast with uh, one of the guys from the Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And they talked about how much money they lost when they had to refund people's money previously, like you paid for your tags and then they refunded the money. They actually ended up losing money because of that, because when they had the money, they didn't make enough interest. And then they had to pay the bank to refund the money. I don't know. It was crazy. And it was amazing the number, amount of money they lost doing huh, that. so I think that's why they, they changed it to a, you have to purchase a small game license or a combination fishing license to be able to, Uh, Apply. I think that's the way it is here in Utah as well. I think you have to have a valid license to apply. And it's really weird in Utah because the way you can do it, as long as you have a license when you apply, and then if you draw, you have to renew it or so you have to buy a new one. Whereas if you don't draw, you don't have to buy a new one. So you can actually apply twice on one hunting license in Utah. Hmm. I can definitely understand how it makes sense
1: that a state would want to have you put some skin in the game by buying some type of a license or just jack up a really high application fee that doesn't get refunded. Like you see some of those states where you end up spending 150 bucks just to get a point. Because, yeah, I could see even, even from the administrative cost standpoint of having somebody have to go through and refund the money, like that's going to cost whoever's sitting behind the desk. Their time. I can see that makes can sense. Lose to money
0: me. to think about it as to, you know, obviously, you want them to invest in wildlife, even if they're not necessarily hunting wildlife, because everybody says hunting is conservation. So you want you want them to have to kind of invest a certain amount of money to be able to apply to hunt the wildlife, but there's a point where it's going to start discouraging people, because I think Colorado's their big five species or whatever it is like for their bighorn sheep. If I remember in that podcast, the number of applicants went up by like 300 and something percent for their bighorn sheep tag, because it was so cheap and easy to apply for that. Now everybody and their brother applied for it. Hmm. What would you think
1: about more like Midwestern type States doing some type of application or draw system like Iowa, for example, or like North Dakota's firearm season? Versus just having over-the-counter for everybody.
0: I mean, to me, it's all about the availability of the tag and the number of animals you're expected or you need harvested, basically. So, you know, if you look at the numbers and you provide an over-the-counter tag and you're hitting those numbers or getting relatively close to those numbers, if you put in an application fee, those number of people that are probably going to just buy an over-the-counter tag and you know, may shoot a deer here or there. I was going to go down. So I think your harvest numbers would go down as well. So I think that's what has a lot to do with it, dependent on, you know, like in Missouri, my mom and them, they don't even buy tags. They get farm tags. So they can hunt on the farm. They don't even have to buy a tag. They just go down and say, this is who I am. This is how many acres I own. And it spits out a number of tags. And then that's what they use to hunt with. So they're not even paying to towards conservation of deer to be able to hunt deer. I mean, yes, their taxes and other things go towards it, but if you look at it from the standpoint of having to apply, they're not applying and my dad wouldn't apply. So I wonder, like,
1: uh, I was just looking at some stats from like the harvest and they're saying about how, you know, typically more bucks get shot than does. And that's just kind of a a normal thing in the States that just have kind of their over the counter tags and that. You know they always give out like a bunch of doe tags in certain areas, but still it seems like those those numbers seem to hold pretty steady. And it's like I wonder what type of an impact would it have if you still had those if people could buy a hunting license, just like talking out loud hypothetically. Like if people could buy a hunting license over the counter, but they still needed to maybe draw like a buck tag or something for a certain region or a certain area, so you you could go out and and hunt your your doe to try and meet the state's quotas for deer population, whatever they figure the amount of does it needs to be to get killed. But then it makes the, the buck tags a little bit more uh, hard to get.
0: One thing Virginia did that I thought was quite interesting was they sold stamps basically. So you got your hunting license, your deer tag basically, but then you had to buy stamps for everything except modern gun. So if you were going to archery hunt, you had to buy a $15 archery stamp basically if you were going to muzzleloader hunt, you had to buy a $15 muzzleloader stamp. And I think they kind of did that from the aspect of they could figure out how many hunters were actually hunting with various methods. You know, so to me, I don't know why they didn't sell a a muzzleloader, a modern firearm, a crossbow, a archery, so that way you're, you're going across the board, whereas the way they had it, I guess they could say, well, if they didn't buy a muzzleloader tag or a muzzleloader stamp, or a archery stamp, they're just going to modern gun hunt. But for the most part, you had to buy your stamp to hunt, which is kind of similar to what you're talking about. It's not necessarily applying for a tag. You're just having to pay a little bit more money to hunt individual seasons, per se. Yeah,
1: well, kind of like Wyoming, we put in points for it, and you can draw a general tag, which is good for a firearm, but then you can buy the opportunity to also archery hunt on that same general tag for a little bit more.
0: Here, one thing they do is they do a, a dedicated hunter program. So it's a three-year program, and in the three years, they will give you two tags. And those two tags can be filled with any method in that unit. So you can start out archery hunting, then you can move to muzzleloader, and then you can finish with rifle season, basically. Um, but over the course of the three years, you can only kill two deer. And as part of that... The new stipulation this year is you have to do so many volunteer hours in order to complete the program. And historically, I think it's it's 64 hours total, I believe, over the three years. But now this year, something new they've done is you have to complete eight hours of volunteer work before they give you the first tag. Whereas I think historically you had to complete 16 hours within the first two years and then 16 hours in your last year and now i think they've got it broke down where you have to do 8 in the first year 16 in the second year and then 8 again in the third year so they're using the volunteer work towards conservation so they host programs whether it be banding ducks uh doing uh like deer studies where they will catch and radio collar deer that you can volunteer to help them with that uh, bighorn sheep things. They do all kinds of various conservation related things that you can volunteer to help. So that's kind of how they're getting their funding out of it is they're making you volunteer basically to help them with wildlife related projects. I guess that kind of makes sense
1: because ultimately it's the work that is doing the conservation. So whether you're having somebody do the work or you're getting money from people to pay somebody else to do the work,
0: it's kind of the same End result, a lot of these areas like where we have these big fires out here is they'll go through and they may do like aerial reseeding of it, but then they'll go in and they'll specifically in some of these wintering areas that may have burned, they'll plant specific vegetation in the wintering areas for the deer. So, you know, they're, I think they're having a big one. It was either this weekend or it was last weekend where they go down and plant some ridiculous number of shrubs basically in the wintering areas that burned basically. And it's, it's, it's interesting. It's a different dynamic, a different way to do it. So what else do you got?
1: I guess between, between now let's say, and I'm going to say July when I imagine you might start hitting the mountains a little bit and maybe do some glassing for stuff, which I guess I should ask first, are you going
0: to be applying for, The same tags you did last year? Yeah, so our application period ended uh, like the 7th of March maybe. So I applied for deer tag, general deer tag. I actually applied for dedicated because I drew general last year. And I should have enough points to draw dedicated. So that's that program I'll be in where I have three years and two tags. And I put in for big desert bighorn sheep, which I'm probably not going to draw, and I put in for archery elk in a unit that takes like 14 points to draw. And I have two points. So I'm probably not going to draw it either. So my anticipation is I'll draw a deer tag for the same unit I hunted last year, this year for dedicated, but it gives me the ability to hunt with a bow, muzzleloader or firearm. I probably won't use modern firearm, but I probably will break out the flint lock and want to go see if I can chase a deer with a flint lock. Oh, that'd be fun. <laughs> and then, so between now and then, I actually drew a turkey tag for the third year in a row now. So hopefully all this snow won't mess up the turkeys too bad. And I think that's coming up in like a month. I, th- I think it's the second weekend in April is when that season opens. So that'll be the 13th of April that'll open. So my plan is I'll probably take the that first week off of work and go down. I drew the southern unit tag. So it's about about two hours from here will get me into that unit. So that's typically kind of where I go is I'll go and spend a, spend a week down there chasing turkeys. I haven't figured out if I'm gonna go recurve bow or shotgun yet. So Well you didn't that's still all you didn't year. kill one last year, right? So No, I only I only got to hunt two days last year on that, so a little bit better odds my if you had a week, spend a for little, sure. Yeah, sp- spend a little mo- more time. You know, last time it was opening weekend, so there was quite a few people around for being a draw unit. So hopefully, you know, hunting in during the weekday will really relax that a little bit and there won't be as much pressure on the birds.
1: Yeah, mid-April is where our first season opens up to. And then pretty much the entire month of May I got as many tags as I want to buy for Wisconsin. So that's when the – usually when my turkey – hunting really starts heating up is when everybody
0: else's season is pretty much over (laughs) outside of Turkey. You got anything, anything else, any scouting, anything like that? You're, you're looking forward to say between now and September, October. Um,
1: we'll be going, so I guess not hunting related specifically, but, um, a couple of weeks I'm going out to Lake Erie on a walleye fishing trip with my dad, a couple other relatives, and then um, going to the Boundary Waters Memorial Day weekend and probably at least one or two more times after that. And I'm going to scramble to try and build a a teepee shelter, teepee t- style shelter before that happens and buy a stove to be able to run inside of it. Um, of course, we might get like 80 degree temperatures like we did last year, and then obviously the <laughs> stove would not be worth it. But uh, I'll need it eventually for Colorado, so I'm going to try and build it for that. And then, yeah, scouting is just scouting and turkey hunting are going to be the two biggest things. So I'm going to try and get as much, as many hours in the woods this weekend as I can scouting that marsh before the ice melts. Hopefully, fingers crossed that it won't be melted too much to walk on. And then once kind of this whole period of melt and runoff and mud kind of dries up, then I want to do my scouting trip down in Southeast Minnesota and pound those woods and and run the hills and and try and pick out some good ambush points for that firearm season.
0: So did I hear you and say you're going to build a teepee for Colorado? Are you bailing on the hammock camping?
1: Yeah, because we're only going to have two guys most likely this year. So it's like, well, we could have one guy bring a, a hammock set up and the other guy bring basically like his own tent. Or it just makes more sense logistically to just have the teepee shelter, bring the stove, and just share the weight between the both of us. I still like the hammock for sleeping solo, but it's like logistically just makes more sense.
0: The problem out here is, I don't know, maybe, I guess you could probably find trees that are close enough to deal with. Cause my biggest thing out here is you can't hardly find ground flat enough for a, a decent tent or like in your situation, a, a two man tarp or teepee, you know, it's hard to find that flat of an area. A lot of times you're kicking out a deer bed. And so that's kind of why I went towards just the bivy sack is I'll just slide in a baby sack and lay in a deer bed if I have to.
1: Yeah, it can be tough in the area that we're going to to find flat enough spot, but usually we find something that's at least serviceable.
0: And then outside of hunting, just this summer, I'm going to do a lot more. You know, we went to Yellowstone a couple of times last year with the rooftop tent in the Tacoma. So we're I think next weekend we're actually headed to southern Utah towards uh, Arizona border. I think it's snow basin state park or something like that. We're going to head down there and spend a few days down around the Moab St. George area. So we're going to expand out and do a lot of camping from there. So that's a little more glamping than camping.
1: Yeah. But that'll be fun though. Cause I mean, Moab that's, did I stay in Moab? I feel like we stayed in Moab one of those nights. Is that the, that's the city with the, Um, the arches national park. Yeah. Yeah. We were there. We were there. Pretty area for sure.
0: Yeah. I'm going to try to beat a lot of the tourists to some of these places. So now that it's getting fifteen, sixties 60s in the day, you know, the tourists will come out, come Memorial day. And so we're going to try to get most of it done before then. That way we don't have to fight the hordes and hordes of people. Yeah. We had just stayed at like a BLM land,
1: like right on the side of the road. Like, there wasn't any, like, marked campgrounds, but we talked to some of the rangers, and they're like, yeah, pretty much everything here is booked, but there's, like, this unmarked campground, like, on the BLM, like, two miles down the road. So, you go pull off there, and there's, like, there's fire pits and stuff, and you can just drive right in.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what we're looking to do. We can just kind of float around and move around a little bit if we have to.
1: Nice. That'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening in once again. Please make sure to follow and like the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network on Facebook, Instagram, leave us a review on iTunes, and be sure to share the episodes with your friends. Thanks for listening.